Good morning. I extend a welcome as well to all of those who are visiting. Uh, we thank God that you're here, and we praise God for all that we have enjoyed uh, this weekend, uh, the worship of God on Friday night, the prayers yesterday. And this is our regular series on Genesis 22, but we are going to make it a part of our weekend and tie it into our celebration as a church our prayers as we offer them up, and our hope and dedication to God. So you see in the title, Consecration, which means giving ourselves up to God's gracious will. Simple, Abraham's consecration to God and our consecration to God. As we rejoice in him, as we have given ourselves up in prayer to him, how do we give ourselves afresh to his will, to be his people and accomplish his mission in this world. And it just so happens that it came, uh, our, our timing was that we were here in page 16 in your pew Bible uh, for this great incident of Abraham offering up Isaac. This would be considered perhaps the greatest chapter of the Old Testament. So if somebody else would come up here and do this, I would appreciate it. <laughs> you just not... It, it, is, it is far beyond Everest to me in terms of trying to lay hold of the beauty and glory, the meaning, the significance of this passage. Uh, but we'll, by God's grace, have at it and pray his blessing upon us. So we begin reading chapter 22, verse 1. After these things refers to, in chapter 21, as Ryan taught last week, the birth of Isaac and the casting out of Ishmael. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. 
When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, third time, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. That's the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, our, our whole meaning as human beings is bound up in this question of giving ourselves up to you. Lord, it, it, it is an assessment of what we think of you, how we trust you, how we admire you, how we love you, how we enjoy you. It's bound up in it, Lord, is what we think about our future and, and whose hand is our future. And, Lord, we're, you, you know how each one of us struggles and how we resist you. Even though, in the main, we, we've given ourselves up to Christ, but it is a lifelong work. And so, Lord, we pray that by your grace, we would be encouraged to give ourselves up to your will, your gracious will, your good will, your good purposes. Purposes that always have as their goal our enrichment as human beings in your presence and our enrichment in constantly liberating us to love others. Oh Lord, we're weak, we're frail. We can do nothing good in ourselves. Certainly, we cannot consecrate ourselves. Oh, Lord, you have already begun the work in us who are believers. And as Paul promises, we pray it. What you have begun in us, Lord, 
continue and complete to the day of Jesus Christ. We ask this for your glory and honor. Amen. So, as we begin talking about Abraham's consecration to God here, and this is, this is about Abraham's willingness to obey God at a time where, uh, under a command that just is unthinkable, uh, unimaginable. And maybe the first question, we'll just talk about it a little bit, is how in the world could God command something like this? You know that the, the people of this land of Canaan would one day be ejected from the land because, among other things, they sacrificed their children to their gods. It was an abomination to God. Well, how can he do this? Well, a little bit of background may help. In Exodus 22, in talking about what belongs to God and what belongs to us. In verse 29, God said, You shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage. So offering up what you've grown. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. So the firstborn, you see, were liable to death in Egypt because the firstborn died under God's judgment, the Egyptians. But... God's own were preserved through the sacrifice. But from that point on, it was just understood, the firstborn belong to you. You've redeemed them. They're not ours. They belong to you. There's this sense of the ownership of God in all things expressed in this paramount way. Firstborn is yours. We belong to you. Everything we have belongs to you. But... Exodus 34, all the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. So you redeem them with a sacrifice and you get to keep your son because there's a sacrifice in place of that son, but the firstborn belong to God. Now, it's interesting in this very word, Moriah, is that is the word provide, which we come to later. So at least there's a hint, if you happen to know your stuff, right, that there's something going on. It's the land of provision. But we know also that God is testing Abraham. Abraham doesn't know that. But this at least is the framework for that one could give up his firstborn to God. And a text from Job helps us his way. Uh, as well, he says, Behold, he that is God snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, What are you doing? So it, it really is an expression of the absolute sovereignty of God. And one commentator puts it this way Do you understand what you have is a pure gift? Do you understand that? We have no legal title to anything that God ever gives us. And he may take it away at any time. They may be removed at will by his power. So there's, there's something of this. It, it pushes us to the edge of understanding how God commanded. But this gives you a little bit of biblical context of the ownership of the firstborn and the fact uh, that all things are God's. And he can recall them at any time he chooses. 
But I would like, as we talk about this consecration to God, to understand it against the loss that this is to Abraham. You know, in his original call in chapter 12, verse 1, he had to lead, he had to abandon his whole past, right? Leave your family, leave your homeland, leave everything. In this chapter, he has to abandon and give up his whole future in Isaac. That's what he would hear in this. And just think of the difference in the command in chapter 12. Go to this land and you will be, this will be your land. You'll have descendants and you will be blessed and you'll be a blessing to the whole earth. What about now? All that just collapses and is over. So you're faced in that obedience, which is hard to leave everything to follow after God. But look at the promises laid out before you. Here's obedience and the promise is absolute loss. Do we obey then? Do we obey when to obey is to lose everything? That's the challenge of this passage that shakes me to the core. It's interesting in the, uh, in the actual command here, some of the commentators feel like that he almost takes a little moment to bring it up, you know. Abraham, here am I. And then he starts, right? Just a little bit of almost divine pause of what he's about to ask. And he actually uses a word that's rarely used in a divine command, but people use it to each other. Please. Little Hebrew word, nah. As though he's saying, I urge you, would you? It's a command for sure, but it has that little tenderness in it of God. Take your son. And God is very aware of what he's asking, right? He underscores it. And, and God mentions it twice later, doesn't he? It's your only son. It's the son you love. I know what this means to you. Yes, I mean it. Take him. and Make him a burnt offering. And the little phrase, after these things, you know, after many years, 25 years, finally Isaac is born. Kind of a last second redemption, a last second fulfillment of this promise that's been waited on for 25 years. And, and we're not quite sure how old uh, Isaac is here. Maybe it's 10 to 15 years later. So now we're 35 to 40 years into his having left everything for the promise. And... This, this is everything, everything gone. Because Isaac is not only the child of promise, he represents the whole promise. He represents every saving thing God has promised to do. And so in the loss of Isaac, Abraham's whole life is wiped out. This 35 to 40 years of obeying God's call in hope of his promise. It's now one horrible wasted life. It's over. At least in the, the bare presentation of this, that's what he's facing. And yet, the next morning early, he gets up. 
astonishing, astonishing obedience. And brothers and sisters, you and I have got to realize, and it's happened to probably every one of you, but God does things in our lives that seem to contradict who he is and it seems to contradict what he's promised. You just can't make any sense out of it. And I, I can tell you many times, I've just been astonished, upset. Can't, I thought you were this God, but you're not. You know, that's the feeling you have. He seems to act against his salvation sometimes. He certainly acts against our hope or the shape of salvation and its work in our lives that we assumed it would be, right? We assumed his salvation and his work would look this way and have these features and then it blows up. Paul felt this when he talks about the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul felt like this was hindering his ministry. You know, this can't be right. You've got to remove this. It's standing in the way of the gospel, Lord. And he said, I prayed three times. Three times doesn't mean maybe just three. It may mean I prayed over and over and over. I prayed as much as I could pray about it. And God ended up saying, in this weakness that cripples you, and somehow it cripples your ability in some way to actually function. As an apostle, as in that weakness, I'm going to be made strong. So Paul had to think differently about the way things were going to look for his life. God's power was made known in that weakness. This can certainly happen to a church. It can certainly happen to a church. That things don't turn out like we had hoped. Things don't look like we thought they would look. It even seems sometimes that God is working cross purposes with his salvation and his gospel. And what we think would be success as a church. But isn't it wonderful that God says, oh yeah, you're weak. You're very weak. You're helpless. You're weaker than you could ever imagine. And my strength will be made perfect in that weakness. Sometimes it seems he's acting against the good of his people by what happens. But this is his test. You know, will we give ourselves up to him? Will we trust him? Will we expect him to do great things? Now, along these lines, it's really interesting when you read... uh, The first three chapters of Genesis. First chapter has just the word God without Yahweh or or it's translated Lord in your English Bible. It's just God. God made the world. God made the lights. Thirty-five times the word God. Now when you finish the creation story, which pushes into chapter 2, in chapters 2 and 3, it's the Lord God. Elohim Yahweh. God the Lord, Lord God. So that's his, that's his covenant name. That's his name of promise, his name of intimacy, his name of commitment, the name that declares, I am everlasting in steadfast love to you. 
You know where the word Lord is dropped in the first two chapters? It's dropped in the temptation. Satan and Eve don't use the word Lord as they're talking. It's just God. Just God. And in that sense, the alienation that's occurring is expressed in that way. That things are dark and the covenant aspect, the relational aspect of God is being abandoned. You know where else? Right here. It's not Lord God during these first ten verses. It's God. As though there's a pall over the promise of God and the covenant of God and the commitment of God. Even expressed in the terminology itself. But here's the thing I want you to understand. When he seems like and is the inscrutable God, the God that isn't watching or the God that is not, is, is, is remote, inexplicable. He really is always Yahweh. But he'll feel like he's just a God somewhere and that he doesn't care for you and these promises have been abandoned. But he is Yahweh. And you know where it shows up, the word Yahweh? Verse 11, and the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham. See, when he manifested himself in redemption, when he manifested himself, I am covenanted with you. I do love you. I am committed to you in promise. Then the name comes back. Now, of course, God has rich meaning to me and to you. But I'm just saying in terms of literature, in terms of trying to uh, show this. And I think that's helpful for us to realize that the, the clouds of circumstance and and providential difficulty can cloud the view that he's a covenant God. Oh God, where are you? But he is the covenant God. He is always Yahweh, though it does not appear so. And that's kind of the thing here. It doesn't appear, appears that I've lost God in some way. Still, Abraham was obeying him. That's the thing. In the midst of the seeming abandonment of God and his promises, he still gave himself up to God's will. It's odd that he does the wood last here because it's not the right order. Like everything's ready and they're leaving and then he goes and cuts the wood. And some people think maybe he's delaying it till the end because it's so painful. Maybe he's just confused and clouded. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I got to get the wood, you know. It's just, you're not sure what's going on here. The, the phrase which God had told him, repeated a couple of times, keeps underscoring for us. He's obeying God. He's doing what God told him. He's following God. There's things that God told him about the place that we don't know, but it keeps talking about that. And then seeing the place from a distance, seeing the painful, terrible thing that you don't want to think about, and there it is. And now... Got to keep going that way. It's drawing out the pain. And then this this statement, we will come again to the servants. Some think he's maybe hiding the truth. Some think maybe he's confused. But I think it's more this. 
I don't know how he will do it. I, I can't see anything. I'm, I'm, I am confused. I, but, and I can see no way out of it. But we're going to both come back. You know, and many times in your life, you, you can't even explain how or what could happen good in this. You know, you don't know how to even pray about it. But you can say, I'm in his hands. That I know. I'm in his hands. So I would lean toward that. And, and all commentators would say by verse 8 when he says, the Lord will provide that he really is hoping in God's grace. He really is hoping in the provision of God at that point. Now, the writer of Hebrews says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, underscoring the reality, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring will, will be named. So the writer is just thinking of the momentous act of obedience when it's through him and, and yet he's offering him. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. So it's, it's hard to imagine how Abraham would have worked out that doctrine of resurrection of the body or, or whatever. But the writer is saying he knew he believed. He couldn't even imagine how it would happen. I think of Ephesians 3.20. He's able to do far above all that we can ask or think. Can't even imagine it. Can't even hardly ask for it. But he is God. Something like that seems to have been going on. I love Calvin's statement here. We act unjustly towards God when we hope for nothing from him but what our senses can perceive. We treat him unjustly. To think it's limited by what my perception is. It's limited by my experience or what I think can be done. What I can imagine to be done. Don't act unjustly toward God. He is not limited by your sense. He's not limited by your imagination. He is the infinite God. And so Calvin says, pay him the highest honor. Pay him the highest honor. Leave the event to God in order that he may open a way for us when there is none. I love that. There is none. Don't tell me there is. I know there's none. He opens a way. And we honor him when we believe that you're able to do far above all that I ask or think. I slowed down in verses 9 and 10 because the Hebrew slows down at that point. Every detail, as though every little part, almost waiting and waiting, the pain, the horror of it. And... It's interesting, this, this cry, Abraham, Abraham, it's like a touching moment where it's almost the angel having anxiety that he could be too late. You know? <laughs> of course, that didn't, but that's the feel of it. Abraham, Abraham! You know? That's beautiful. It's wonderful to see God invested in this, right? He's, 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 he's running to the rescue here. You know, in Rembrandt's great painting, uh, the angel actually grabs 
Abraham's hand. The painting is painted at that point where he's grabbed his hand and the knife is falling from his hand. I loved, you know, it was his conception, but that is the feel of the passage. Last minute. And, of course, the provision of the ram and then the outpouring of blessings as a result of his obedience. And this is a little hard because the, the blessings are bolder, more beautiful and pronounced than any other time up to this point. These, these blessings are laid out, not only the stars of the heaven, your offspring, but the sand that is on the seashore. And he has this word, I will surely multiply you, you know. In the Hebrew, you just repeat the word, you know, I, I will, in blessing you, I will bless you. It's the way to say, I will certainly, surely bless you. I will certainly multiply you. And then he says, not only will your offspring possess the land, but they'll possess the gate of, of the enemies. And in your offspring, it set up to this point in you, all the nations, but now in your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. And what's hard about this is he says, because you have done this, because you have done this. And several people in writing about this have said, it's the same assumption that underlines prayer God is sovereign over all things, but God takes up and incorporates our prayers and our actions to bring about his blessings in the world. And these blessings, all the blessings that have gone to all the nations of the earth in Jesus Christ, in one sense, pivoted on this great act of obedience. Of course, it was in God's purposes and God upheld Abraham, and God was not going to be denied his covenant promise. But it was accomplished through Abraham's obedience and declaring then, the Lord will provide. This this is the, the mantra, right? The Lord, in whatever circumstance, no matter how terrible, he will provide. That's a great note for us, isn't it? It's a great note for each one of us. When you're struggling in relationship, you're struggling with work, you're struggling uh, in whatever area, the Lord will provide. Let me speak briefly to our consecration to God. How do we, how do we deal with this? What, what does this help us, especially from a New Testament perspective in terms of Jesus Christ? I was trapped in teaching in... Uh, college that we all need to make this one grand perfect sacrifice of ourselves up to God and then if you can just do that and do it right and do it completely and perfectly your life will just flow after that hadn't found that to be the case (laughs) I know one person on the staff of a certain Christian organization that had a mental breakdown because of that because of thinking that he could get to the point where he could be perfectly given up to God, and because he always knew he wasn't, he just couldn't take it anymore. I think there's a fundamental giving of ourselves up to God in Christ, but it's proven out over and over in your life, and it's 
tested again over and over in your life. And it digs deeper into your life, this commitment. Peeling away the layers of self and idolatry throughout the whole of your life. You could say the Spirit is on a search and destroy and liberate mission that lasts your whole life. And this dedication to God that begins in a kind of infant form, it just keeps stretching it out, stretching out and widening as the new life of Christ continues to manifest itself in your life as you give yourself up to him. That's the picture I would have for you, right? God's work to help us and enable us and strengthen us. Three things to say here at the end. First, we consecrate ourselves in light of God's provision. That's the message here. The Lord will provide. But in Christ, we can say, the Lord has abundantly provided, right? It's interesting that this phrase, only son, which is repeated three times in the Hebrew, it's when the Greek translation of that came about, they used the word beloved, beloved. And it's the same word that the father uses when he says, this is my beloved son at his baptism. And on the mount, when Jesus was translated and turned into this glorious figure, God said, this is my beloved son. It recalls the reality of Abraham sacrificing his beloved son. And yet he didn't have to sacrifice his son. But God, as Paul brings out, and Paul here likely was playing off of this act of Abraham. He said, he who did not spare his own son. He spared Abraham's son. And he provided a substitute. He didn't spare his own son because his son was the substitute for us. But this, this statement, he did not spare his own son Paul taking that and in the wonder and beauty that he spared Abraham's son, but he didn't spare his own son. He said, therefore, you know what? He's not going to hold anything back from you. The cross declares to us the Lord will provide because he's provided his own son and did not withhold him from us. (laughs) Will the Lord provide you in every circumstance of your life? Is he providing for you even when it looks like he's abandoned you? Yes. Why do you know that? He didn't spare his son. He spared Abraham's. He didn't spare his own beloved son. In that provision, we have the assurance that we can give ourselves up to his will. You see, we can trust this God. We can count on him. We know he's got our best interests at heart. And if you're here and you don't trust in Christ, I would urge you to put your trust in him. I would urge you to give yourself up to him because look who God is. Look who God is. God is the one who sacrifices his own son so that he would bear your punishment and that you could be forgiven. What a God. Another encouraging thing in consecrating yourself. And this is taken from John 17 where Jesus says, he's praying to God and he says, I consecrate myself to you so that 
they may be consecrated to you. And the idea is in Jesus offering up himself for us, he also offers us up with him. So he offers himself up for us, but he also brings us up in his offering. Brothers and sisters, here's the encouraging thing. In Christ, you are consecrated to God. You are, you've been made alive and given to God and you belong to him. So it's not just you, you know, trying to get the distance and trying to offer yourself up to God. But Jesus has offered himself you in him. And Jesus says here too, the glory you've given me, I've given to them. He defines that glory as my glory is that I lay down my life for them. And that's how you are glorified. So what is the glory he gives you? The glory he gives you is that you too can lay down your life. That's your glory. That's your consecration to God, that you belong to him, you become like Christ, and you have the glory of giving yourself away and loving others and becoming that humble self-forgetful person. This is the oasis that each one of you can be in Christ. The oasis of self-forgetful love. That's your glory. That's what he's called you to. That's his provision for you. And just lastly along those lines in Romans 12, Paul says, offer yourself up as living sacrifices. He means by that you offer yourself up to him as those who are alive from the dead. You're not what you were. You've been made alive with the very life of Christ, the very life of the spirit in you. And you are able to offer yourself up to God. So let's be encouraged that God would do this in Abraham. Let's realize that it wasn't Abraham. It was God's grace in Abraham. And that grace is yours and mine because we're called children of Abraham and we have the spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we praise your great name that as Abraham gave himself up to your will and trusted you, you call us to trust you and you enable us to trust you. You convince us of your provision for us in Christ. Convince us of your love. You, Lord, have caught us up with you. You've scarfed us up in your own giving up up of yourself to the Father. And we are given up in you. And your glory rests upon us. The glory of self-sacrifice. And we've been made alive so that we're no longer bent in on ourselves. But more and more we can manifest that we live for you and not for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for your abundant provision to make us like Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.